Well, we continue this morning in a sermon series in which we are asking the question, how is your welcome? Uh, How well do you do when someone walks in that you do not know through the doors of our church, how well do you do at making the point of reaching out to them, making them feel like they are really welcome to come into this house? We are doing this because we realize that we're not as good at it as we think we are. I shared with you the survey that was done in which Church members were asked how well they did, how friendly they were. 97% think that they're friendly. Remember how many of the guests of those same churches thought that they were friendly? 3%. 97%, 3%. There is a disconnect there, isn't it? And so we are working more diligently so that when someone walks through our doors for the first time, they will sense a genuine and warm and welcome into God's house. And we're doing that in a variety of ways. I've asked you to be a gorilla greeter. How many know what I'm talking about when I say that? I am, and all of you raised your hand, so I'm going to hold you into it. I'm expecting you're doing your job, which means, you know, it's not something you signed up for. You're just keeping your eyes open. You're watching. You're kind of sneaking up on people that you don't know and, and, and telling them you're glad that they're here and helping them find their way and so forth. So we're trying to do these things that would make us an even more welcoming church than we already are, than we think we are. Here's the deal, though. If... If we're not genuine about this, we're in trouble. If we're just going through the paces, that's going to be pretty evident, isn't it? Peter once wrote to um, the Christians that were scattered throughout the region. He wrote these words that I think are very helpful for us in this moment. He said, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Read those words with me. Go. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So even if we shake someone's hand, even if we make a point of getting to know their name, even if, God forbid, we actually get out, slide down the pew so that someone can join us after they have come late to church, if we do all of those things, but if our hearts are cold towards them, that resentment is just going to ooze out. They will sense that it's not real. And so this morning, as we continue in this journey, I want to talk about our hearts, I want to talk about the state of our hearts as hosts in God's house. And to do that, I want to talk about the greatest story that Jesus ever told. Now, that's saying a lot because Jesus told some great stories. And, of course, he was the premier, the greatest storyteller, the greatest teacher ever to live. But I think that there is one parable above all that captures the lavishness of God's grace and love for his wayward children more than any other. We call that parable the prodigal son. Uh, Some have called it the parable of the lost son. But really, it is a parable of two lost sons because both of them were just as lost. And we're going to take a look at this in several acts this morning. So if you want to, you may turn to Luke chapter 15. That's where you'll find this story. Otherwise, if you just want to listen, and we will turn to Act 1 and listen as the disciples would have heard this for the first time from the lips of Jesus. Here is what he said. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that I have coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. This is the word of the Lord. As Westerners, 
It is almost impossible for us to appreciate how incredibly disrespectful the words of this son were, the request that this younger son made to his father. But Westerners, we just wouldn't get it. Because if you ask a, a Middle Easterner about this exchange, they will tell you that that request was tantamount to that boy saying, I wish you were dead. I, I don't want you, I want your stuff, and I really don't want to have to wait around until you die to get it. It is enormously disrespectful. In fact, if you read Middle Eastern commentators on this parable, they will tell you that at the time, that son, if he made a request like that, he would have been beaten and disowned for the outrageous way that he treated his father. But the outrageousness actually continues. Here's why. Um, when, when we talk about Middle Eastern, this time, this season of Middle Eastern culture, it wasn't like the dad could go down to the bank and just cash in some of his IRAs to settle accounts. His, land, his, his wealth was tied up in the land. The land meant everything to them. It was precious to them. It was their identity as a people. And, uh, and, and in order then for, for this boy to do what he had asked, for his father to do what he's asked, he's going to have to sell off some of his estate. And the pain of what he is asking really comes out in this verse where it says, and he divided his property between them. That word property is actually the word bios, from which we get the word biology. The word means literally life. Think about that. The, The real translation, the literal translation of that verse would go something like this. The father tore his life apart. And gave it to him. Can you hear the wrenching nature of what this boy, the disruptive nature of what this boy is asking his father to do? So let's read on. When the son had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields... To feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs eat. But no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself. When he came to his senses. He said. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread. But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say. Father I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. Take me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. So the younger son squanders his inheritance as you know. And he ends up in a pinch. In fact he ends up in the most humiliating job. That a young Jewish nobleman could hold. He was a pig slopper. You, you realize for the, for the Jew, this was, there was no lower job in the world because they considered pigs to be unclean spiritually, ceremonially, religiously, unclean, disgusting. As you know, I'll be going back to Israel next November. Some of you are going along. There's still room if you'd like to get signed up. It'll be a great trip, great group. When we land in Tel Aviv, we will be met by my friend and my favorite tour guide, Yaakov. Yaakov is a secular Jew, as are 84% of the Jews in Israel, by the way. And Yaakov um, 
doesn't, does not practice. He does not go to synagogue. He does not practice any of the Jewish rituals and so forth. And so when I heard that, naturally, my next question was, so do you eat bacon? And he said, that is unthinkable. We would never eat such a thing. I was taken back by the, the strength of his response. Here he is, a secular Jew. He doesn't observe any of the other Jewish stuff. But the idea of eating pork, unthinkable to him. And yet, this Jewish noble son ends up in the pig pen. And it is there that a little sense ends up being slapped into him. Isn't it funny how life does that with our younger uh, friends? And he decides he's going to go back home to his dad with his tail between his legs, and he has a speech all worked out. He realizes that he has thrown away his sonship. His inheritance is blown. He's got nothing left to show for that. But maybe dad, in his mercy, for old time's sake, will give him three huts and a cot, and he'll at least have a safe place to live. And so that is his desire, and he heads home. And now we come to one of the sweetest, most grace-filled images that you will find in the Bible. Apart from the image that we have of Jesus hanging on the cross to die for our sins, I don't think there is another picture that the Bible paints uh, that is more graphic in its depiction of the lavishness and the grace of God's love for his wayward children than the than the words that you're about to hear me share with you. Listen as if you've never heard this before. But while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. There's so much that is sweet about these few Verses, let's start right at the top. How is it we read, as we do, that the father, while the son was still a long way off, he saw him? How is it that the father would see the boy when he was still a long way off? How? Because he was doing this. Every day, the same thing he had been doing every day since his son had run away. He was praying and longing and waiting and looking and hoping for the return of his prodigal son. He paced the boundaries of his property, longing for that day when his son would come back to him. As shamefully as he had been treated, as humiliated as he was in front of his villagers, and he really was for what he had done to this boy. Still, he loved his prodigal boy. He missed him. And so he paced the property every day, waiting for that moment, hoping against hope that this would be the day when his prodigal would return. And then that day comes. He's looking out in the distance as he had done every day, and he notices just a speck on the horizon. To anyone else, it would have been unrecognizable. 
but not to dad. He recognizes a familiar form. He recognizes a familiar stride. And he who has already humiliated himself in so many other ways doubles down on his own humiliation. How does he do that? He runs to the boy. He runs to the boy. He does not wait for him to come to him. He runs to him. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? I can imagine doing that if you're eager to see your son return. Again, that's because we don't understand the Middle Eastern culture. Men never run in the Middle Eastern culture. It is not done. Furthermore, it is considered scandalous to reveal your bare legs to someone if you are a man. And so the idea of this man lifting up his robes, shamefully exposing his legs, and dashing towards his son as he had not run since he was eight years old, it was utterly outrageous and shameful and scandalous. And yet, he did it. He did it without a second thought. And when he gets to him, we read that he threw his arms around him. The Greek tells us that he kissed him again and again and again and again on his dirty cheek with tears streaming down his own face. But that's not the end of it. He calls for the very best robe. What do you think was the very best robe in the house? His robe. He calls for his very best ceremonial robe. And he has it thrown over the shoulders of his filthy scallywag. And he puts a a ring on the boy's finger to symbolize his authority that is restored. And he puts shoes on his feet. Only sons wore shoes. Slaves went barefoot. And then you imagine him doing this. Because everybody in the village is watching what is going on. He not only wraps his cloak around him, he wraps his arms around him. And he walks his boy right through the gauntlet of tisk, tisk, tisking villagers who cannot believe that he has come back. And cannot believe that his father would take him back in this way. The boy who has lost all reputation is honored with the robe of repute. The boy who has lost all sense of self-confidence is wrapped in the protective arms of his father in all of his standing and glory. And he walks him right through the crowd and right back home. And then he calls for the killing of the fattened calf. That was the most precious thing that they owned. And it was way too much meat for a family to eat all by themselves, which means that they were going to invite the entire village to the party. So not only is this dad not trying to hide this embarrassment of this boy who has returned, he has thrown the doors wide open, and he's telling every one of those tisk, tisk, tisking villagers, you come and you join in the joy of my reunion with my boy. That's the response of the father. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? It's a wonderful story. And if you stop right there, it would still be the best story that Jesus ever told. But in fact, Jesus doesn't stop there. We might wish he did, but there's one more son. And Jesus tells the story of that one more son. Listen to this. Now, the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, 
These many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. There's so many things about this section of the story that disturb me, that make me very uneasy. I'll start right at the top. Now, the older brother, you know what the Greek word for older is? Presbyteros. Yeah. From which we get the word Presbyterian. Yes. I hate that our denomination shares the name of this jerk of a son. But there it is. The elder son. A church run by elders. We are the Presbyterians, it turns out. And pretty quickly we realize that there's not that much difference between these two boys. Between the bad boy and the good boy. There's not that much difference. The Presbyterian son... Let's call him Pres for short, shall we? Is just as disrespectful as his younger brother. For instance, the elder son would have been expected to serve as the host of any great feast that a family was throwing. But not only is he not serving as the host, what is he doing? He stays outside of the house. He's pouting, just like Jonah outside of Nineveh, isn't he? He's out there pouting which forces his father to come to him, which itself was unthinkable. We read that his dad goes out and he begs him to come in. He entreats him. And if we think that that behavior has been outrageous, wait until you hear how he addresses his dad. In that part of the world, they would have expected very honorific greetings like my esteemed father. But you heard how Press starts his angry speech to his dad, don't you? Look! You can almost see his finger wagging. And literally, we would understand it. Look, you! Now, we're not Middle Easterners, but I bet we recognize disrespect when we see it. How many of you dads, if your boy walked up to you, your teenage boy walked up to you and said, Look, you! What would you do about that? This is how this boy greets his father. Look, you! And it becomes quite apparent as the son continues to let off with his tirade... That this son has lived a life of resentful goodness. Resentful goodness. He says, I worked hard. I obeyed all your stupid rules. And you wouldn't give me so much as a scrawny goat for me to have a party with my friends. And then along comes this whoring brother of mine who already spent half of the inheritance. And you kill the fattened calf for him. I cannot believe it. Can you hear the contempt on his voice? It drips from his lips, really. This son of yours, he called him. Did you hear that? This son of yours. He is so bitter and graceless. And his father pleads with him. In fact, he tries to turn the table on him. He said, but shouldn't we celebrate that this your brother has returned? The son says, this son of yours. But the father said, no, he's your brother. Shouldn't you have compassion? Shouldn't you celebrate the return of your brother from the dead? 
What may be most unsettling about this story of all is we don't get an answer. Press never gives him an answer. That is where the story stops. You hope that as he hears his father's entreaty that he repents. And he says, oh, dad, I see how wrong I have been. I am, I am so sorry. You, you hope that he will run into the house with tears streaming down his face and have a, a joyful reunion with his little brother as he throws his arms around him and, and, and welcomes him back. You hope that will happen, but you don't know. It's certainly not how it turns out in this story. And so we see that really not one but two sons were lost. One is lost in his wasteful and sinful and and self-centered pursuit of pleasure, but one was just as lost in his grudging, resentful, rule-keeping obedience. Here's the real painful part of it. Neither of them really wants the father. Isn't that right? Neither of them really wants the father. Both of them want the father's stuff. Both of them were equally disrespectful and disgraceful and humiliating to dad. And only one ends up repenting and returning to the joy of his father's embrace. And it's not the good son. It's the bad son. It's a very disruptive parable. You know, I was reflecting on this a lot I cannot tell you how much I hate to admit that I identify with the Presbyterian in this story. But I do. I'm a child of the church. I'm a rule follower. I'm obedient. I'm loyal. I am dutiful. And when I see others who are not these things, I can get resentful and judgmental and superior And I'm sure I am the only one here this morning that is afflicted with this Presbyterian malady. (laughs) Right? I hear all of you shaking your finger at me, tisk, tisk, tisk. I feel like the, the dad and you're the villagers because all of you don't relate at all to this. The longer that we are in the church, beloved, the more judgy and suspicious and inconvenienced we can become with those who do not behave the way they should. Every weekend, there are broken sons and daughters of God who stumble back into our house, into the Father's house. People who have squandered opportunity, people who have thrown away their lives, people who have lived ungratefully or selfishly, who have brought shame upon themselves or upon their families. And they may be thoroughly disgusted with themselves. They may not feel like they belong here. But they so long to belong that they're willing to take the risk. And so cautiously they stick their heads inside the door. And we who are already inside the house celebrating, enjoying the party, we have two ways that we can respond. We can respond like press the older brother does. And it looks something like this. We can respond with suspicion and anger and judgmentalism and resentment for the intrusion that they represent upon the rhythm of our life. Or we can respond like the father. 
For we have been praying for you to come. We have been longing that you would make your way through our doors. We have been waiting for you. And we are looking for you. And when we see you walk through our doors, we are going to do as the Father did. We're going to run to you. We're going to embrace you. We're going to protect you. We're going to restore you to the place that you belong as the beloved son or daughter of God that you are. Those are the two ways that we can respond. And how I long... How I pray that you long for us to be that second kind of church that has the heart of the Father. Back in the 60s, remember those days well, Vietnam and hippies and all of the rest. I was kind of a hippie, actually. There was a a church in the South. It was a large and prosperous church, well known for its dignity, its formality. In fact, the head usher uh, wore a tuxedo. Every morning. And so it was quite proper, quite dignified, and it was into the midst of this parade of propriety and, and loveliness that in walked a little gal that obviously had no place in that church. She was a hippie. She had tousled hair and a tie-dyed t-shirt and tattered bell-bottom jeans and horror of horrors. She was barefoot, but apparently she didn't know that she didn't belong there. Because she took the bulletin from the head usher and she walked right down the aisle of a church that had a lot longer aisle than this one. All the way to the front, she turned left, right in front of the pulpit, and she sat down on the floor, cross-legged. And you felt the temperature go up in the church. The titters, the mumbling, the, the groans, the... Tisk, tisk, tisking, you heard it. They could not believe the impropriety and the disrespect that this represented. And then to their great delight, all of them, down walks the head usher. In his dignity, in his black tie, he marched down that center aisle. And you could hear them talking to each other and pointing. They could hardly wait to see the resolution of this problem. Hardly wait to see how this man is going to take care of this problem. He walks down the aisle. He turns left, and he stands over that young girl as she sits there for a moment. And then he lowered himself down to the floor, crossed his legs, and sat there for the rest of the worship service with her. That's the heart of the Father. That's the heart of the Father. And how I long that we would be that kind of church that looks for welcomes, can't wait to greet and to sit with and to protect and to restore the broken people of God that he longs to bring from the outside into the party. Let us pray. God, I I really think we want to be this kind of a church. I think we want to be this kind of people who show hospitality without grumbling We catch ourselves sometimes when our pew seat is taken, when our friends are wanting to talk with us, when we're hustling to get from here to there. We catch ourselves ignoring and and perhaps even pushing aside those who clearly aren't sure they belong here. God, would you please change our hearts, not just for today, but week by week by week. Would you change us to be the church that before we say hi to someone we know, looks for someone we don't. That before we save a seat, we would rather say, would you like to sit here with me to the stranger who 
who makes their way down the aisle. Change the way we think, Lord, because there are broken people who are wondering if there's a place in the party for them and how I beg you, Holy Spirit, to make our hearts those kind of welcoming hearts. For we ask this in the name of the only one who can make us those kind of people, the Lord Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.